my Lord, the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to his chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, what I, I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, that the king is grieving for his son. The people stole into the city that day, as people steal into who are ashamed when they flee the battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and if all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So how is David feeling? Depressed. Deeply anguished. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. Well, that I had died instead of you. Why is he? I know he's his father, but Absalom had really double-crossed him. Why is he so grief-stricken? Feels guilty. I think it's his guilt. I really do. I think that adds to his torment. You know, I think he almost thinks he should have died instead of Absalom. You know, whenever we're tempted to sin, these pitiful cries need to teach us that there's a terrible price to sin. There is so much grief and suffering in sin. He is just tormented. He's in anguish. He's just overwhelmed. He forgets the victory completely. You know, all the king is doing is mourning and weeping. You know, how does that affect the returning army? Why? What are they feeling? When you have a victory at war, but then you come back and your king's just not happy about it. They're like, great, what do we do? I mean, look, it's our fault. Do we have lost? Jason? Yeah, this was all about David. All for him that they were fighting. <clears throat> just to have David, you know, pretty much upset that they won. Yeah, right. Well, they didn't intend to return defeated. Either they come back victorious or die out there. But this is like the worst alternative for them. Yes, Jason. And it it's all reminds you with Uriah. He only cared about Uriah. He didn't care about everything else, but he only cared that Uriah was dead. That whole sequence of events led us to this very day, and it's almost the same thing being repeated with his son. All he cared about was that Absalom not be dead. Yeah, it's a very good point. How will this affect the army? 
Yeah. Going to lose their morale. Yeah, it's going to demoralize them. And, and even maybe turn them against him. You know, think about this. He did not ask how many of his own men had died. You don't see him mourning their law, the loss of the, those men, nor would he have mourned the loss of any of his own men as much as he was mourning the death of Absalom. He's, you know, granted, emotionally this is horrible, but he's self-centered in this. It's self-centered grief, and it is hurting his whole situation. You know, there's not a victory celebration. There's not a, a pat on the back and approving words from the king. They slink back in as if they committed some crime. And, and really, David is on the verge of losing everything that's been fought for. He's on the verge of losing the loyalty of his soldiers, soldiers who risked their lives to save the king and now are totally not being appreciated. Their lives don't matter. The traitor's life is what mattered to David. This is a tough situation. I'll tell you, there is no easy way out of, of sin and guilt. I mean, this has created for David a situation that's very painful. It's his own fault. He set this up. Every time our sins have horrendous consequences, it helps us. It blesses us. We need those horrendous consequences. Jacob. Just a question. Um, all of Israel was with Absalom, and we know that Ittai the Hittite was with David. So it's just like... David's old crew, like the 600 that's been with him for a long time, and Ittai, and that's like all he had? No, I don't think so. I mean, look at 18.1. It looks like there's a lot of people. And I'm assuming that, that people have come, uh, you know, out to David and have joined David. Uh, he certainly, you know, has more than just a handful of people. Uh, I'm not sure if I know what else to say about that. Somebody got a good statement on that? Yeah, if you look at 1518. Well, I mean, that's got the 600 and some more. But my, what I'm understanding is that there have been other people that have come to David and have joined up with David. I mean, you see that a little bit in uh, 1727 and following as far as people coming with supplies. They have enough for three companies. Yeah. Whatever that means. Right. Well, I mean, he talks about thousands and hundreds and, and uh, things like that. So I'm assuming there's quite a few on his side. Even so, I mean, some of these people had been with David for a long time, and now they're, I mean... He's disappointed in them for how they served him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a, a very, you know, critical moment. Grief or no grief. I mean, if David doesn't change, he's going to lose the army. He's going to lose the morale of the people. It's a hard point. And who who intervenes at this moment? Joab. Joab. How does he do it? Crude. Crude. 
And he's pretty uh, callous and pretty tough. You know, today you've covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you'd be pleased. You'd better change. He urges, today, you've got to do something. You've got to show that you appreciate your army. And David does. David takes that advice. It's given without a whole lot of consideration and, and compassion. Maybe it had to be given that way. I mean, granted, it's hard to see Joab ever doing something with compassion. But, <laughs> but maybe he needed Joab to shake him up and wake him up. Joab said the right thing. You know, have you ever been rebuked in a way that wasn't very nice? It was, it was a needed rebuke, but the, the manner was just harsh. How do you deal with a harsh rebuke that you need? Quick to hear, slow yeah, to speak, slow to rap. Hey, if we need the rebuke, does it really matter how harsh it is? I know it's more painful. But if we need it, we need it. You know, are you going to reject an important letter because you don't like the, manner, the manners of the postman? You know, you accept the rebuke if you need it, no matter how kind or rude you think the person is who's delivering it to you. It's all the time you hear people out, well, I just didn't like the way they said that. They didn't say that very nice to me. Well, okay, so they didn't. Did you need it? Was it the thing that God wanted you to hear? Are you going to focus on how they didn't say it the way you wish they'd have said it? Are you going to focus on how you needed it and make the changes you need? I, I think it's to David's credit here that he does listen to Joab. Listen to Joab, no less. I mean, of all the people you wouldn't want to give you the message, Joab would have been all of them. He just killed Absalom. He's your headache from, you know, day one. Uh, but he told you the truth. Comments? Yes? How about if you're the person that's rebuking? Well, it would be nice to be mannerly, but the most important thing is to deliver the rebuke plainly. You know, I mean, we ought to care. But here's the thing. you got to, you know, you've got some guy who just crashed his car and it's on fire. You know, are you worried about, you know, I'm, I don't want to hurt him. You know, I don't want to pull too hard. I might bruise him. You know, <laughs> you know, there are times when the point is not that somehow we figured out the perfect way to say it that was the most mannerly and, and, and compassionate possible. Let's have compassion. But, but more important, let's say the thing that needs, needs to be said. Yeah, Ethan. I think at this point, David wouldn't have changed anything if Joab hadn't been as blunt. I think sometimes when we need to correct a brother or sister, sometimes what's needed is to be a little more blunt than beating around the book. Yeah, I think you were right about that, Patrick. Yeah, I amen to that. I, I find myself, I know I'm tempted to like tell myself, oh, I want to wait for like the right moment. I want to figure out how to say it right. And this thing or that thing. And unfortunately, there have been things that have gone unsaid as a result of that. And I mean, 
how horrible and how unfortunate it is someone doesn't hear a, a rebuke that they need because, you know, someone like me or one of us just can't get over this awkward feeling we have over saying what needs to be said. Good point. Ryan. Rebuke's not given in this text we've been studying have resulted in utter disaster. The rebukes that have been given, you know, that especially to David, uh, it's, it's worked out well for him. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing is not to give the rebuke when it's really needed. You know, the worst thing is just to leave the guy in the burning car uh, because you're afraid you might, you know, bruise something. <laughs> you know, so I, I think, you know, it is interesting that Joab's the guy who saves the day. Didn't do it in the most polite way possible, but he did help. Seth? The message of Christ is always offensive to those who don't want to hear it. Uh, some people will see it as a soothing aroma, but other people would consider it the smell of death. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 2. Um, so it, you just got have to preach. Some people will like the smell. Some people will consider it the smell of death. But it's, it's our job to, to, to tell people what they need to hear. Amen. Excellent point. Josh. In uh, 2 Samuel 12, when David is dealing with the guilt of losing his newborn child, he after the, the child actually dies, he's able to move on. What's the key difference here? Even though he has the same sort of guilt with Absalom, he's apparently not able to move on from it. I had not thought about that question. Well, he had anticipatory grief with the child. The child was sick, so he was anticipating it dying. He wasn't anticipating Absalom dying. When he was Amnon, he kind of got over that, so it was sad about Absalom not being there. Dave? Look, at this point, you know, the child, he knew that was going to happen. This, this is compounding. You know, he's seen that he's still reaping the consequences of his sin. So this woman's even more, you know, he's starting to realize, yeah, you know, I deserve to die back then because I was an adult. And you know, all that Absalom's done, I think, makes it harder. I think an innocent child dying is not as hard as a guilty Absalom dying. I think there's just more complications in this. I don't know. I think the uh, guilt of David also plays a factor. I mean, uh, when you feel guilty, it tends to, uh, I guess, compound the sorrow. Yes, I agree. Ethan? Uh, do you think when he says that he wish he would have died instead of Absalom, is that refer do you think that's referring back to when, with his sin with Bathsheba, Maybe. when he should have been the one to die? I have thought that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's an interesting way to say that, Kimberly. Well, but I think it goes back to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. The sword hasn't departed from his house. The concubines were violated in broad daylight. I mean, I think he sees this as more directly uh, connected with his downfall. That's what I think. Evan. I wonder if he still has this view to eternity that he had with his first child. With, He's which, going to see his first child that he lost again. He's not going to see absolutely. Interesting thought. Yeah. Good point. Good to share thoughts. We gain something uh, by thinking in various ways. Logan. Um, I think the parallels between our relationship to 
God are very apparent in the story. I mean, we are Absalom, the son who hates our father and who wanted to kill him, and yet, you know, God actually did, instead of saying what David said, that would I have died instead of you, he actually did that for us. Yeah, good point. Good thoughts. Other comments? Uh, yeah, Nicole. Um, I think maybe why he was more, seems more sorrowful is because he hasn't dealt with his guilt. Like, he dealt with his guilt with the, um, he's still with Bathsheba, you know, he, he repented of that, but he's been kind of avoiding Absalom for so long, and maybe he just hasn't dealt with that, so he's feeling even more guilty, and this, therefore, more sorrowful. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Okay. Well, um, 8 to 15. So the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled, each to his tent. All the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled out of the land of Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Then King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So Amasa, so, so to Amasa, you are not to, uh, my bone and my flesh. May God uh, do so to me, and more also, if you will not be commander of, my, of, of the army before me, continue in place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the, all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, saying, Return, you and all your servants. Then king, uh, the king then returned and came as far as the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal in order to go to the to, uh, in order to go to meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. Okay, so David does welcome his army and uh, he listens to Joab's rebuke. But there's this highly contentious issue of protocol as far as who's going to bring him back. Who's going to sort of you know bring him back to Jerusalem? You know, lead him in becoming king again and. It appears that maybe more than we would have thought originally, the division between Absalom and David is somewhat of a tribal issue. Remember where Absalom was anointed? Hebron. Where was that? South, southern Judah. It appears that Absalom's support is most with his own tribe of Judah. And that the northern tribes tend to be more supportive of David. That's what it appears. And so as you think about that, what David does is to make overtures toward Judah. You know, inviting Judah to be the tribe that takes the lead in bringing him back. And in fact, you know, he, he, well, he said, you know, I'm, I'm from Judah, you know, we're flesh and blood. And uh, he, he makes another, um, you know, decision. 
to try to bridge the gap between ex-Absalom supporters and his side. What does he do? He makes Mesa the commander of the army. Huh, that's interesting. What was Amasa's um, latest accomplishment? Yes, exactly. Amasa's latest accomplishment was losing the battle to David. And so now David wants him to be his commander. Uh, who is that going to replace? Does David have a reason to want to replace Joab? Yes. What? Yeah, he didn't follow orders. Absalom, and maybe even the way he rebuked him. You know, so he's got some motives for replacing Joab, and this is going to kind of, uh, you know, really try to reconcile. You know, you, you get the, the leader on the other side on your team, and, and well, now everybody comes together and is united. So uh, what David probably doesn't realize, maybe he hasn't thought about, is that when he appoints a Mesa, as his army commander, he is actually signing a Mesa's death warrant, but we'll see that a little later. Um, so, Judah is the tribe that's going to bring David back to Jerusalem. Comments and questions to this point? Cameron. Before reading this, this section hasn't made too much sense to me because, like, why would he be... All the decisions David's making doesn't seem quite make sense. It seems like something's missing. This time reading through, I realized God's missing. God's name hasn't been mentioned in a while. He hasn't been going and talking to God, inquiring, God, who should I put up as my chief of my army? And he, he just makes his own decision. Well, here, here's Amasa. I'm going to put him here. And um, I, I want Absalom saved. And he doesn't ask God what happened. So that's what it was. Okay. That's a good observation. Jacob. It's kind of interesting that he's still not dealing directly with Joab. Like, he finds his back doorway to, like, punish him for something he did, and he's still not wanting to stand up to him. Yeah, it's almost like he doesn't fire Joab, he just, you know, appoints a Mesa. <laughs> I guess you'll have to uh, clear out your office, so it's a new guy coming in. <laughs> Other thoughts? Comments? Okay. Um, how about 16 to 23? Over Israel. Therefore, the king said to Shimei, You shall not die in the king's front. 
Remember Shimei? What had he done as David was fleeing? Cursed him and threw dust and you know rocks on him and one thing or another. Now he comes to David as David's coming back. The first one to come. Well, what's his attitude now? <laughs> I just made a really big mistake <laughs> and uh, I'm really sorry and uh, please forget it <laughs> and uh, what's Abishai's idea yeah kill him you know so what's David's idea about the uh, sons of Zeruiah yeah. he's getting fed up with them you know they always want to kill somebody Sometimes they get the job done. Well, this time he won't let him kill Shimei. I don't know, what do you think about David's response with Shimei? Just kind of letting it go. Do you think that this is David, uh, you know, doing well, able to forgive? Do you think it's like so many other things after his sin, he just doesn't deal with the problem, like he didn't deal with Amnon or Absalom or Joab or whatever? What do you think? I think he's upset at, the, uh, at uh, Joab and... Abishai's killing. They just seem to kill everybody. He's just tired of it. Maybe so. Micah. If he were to have Shimei killed, this would have been the first uh, descendant of Saul that he would have had killed ever. And so uh, he keeps his reputation of uh, staying true to Saul's family. Okay. A Benjamite at least, yeah. Okay. Dad. He, uh, he commands Solomon to kill Shimei, is that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting that in certainly it, he would have been more in his right mind, right mind then, perhaps. Uh, and so kind of weird because he basically is saying he won't, and then he tells his son to later. Yeah, yeah, Cameron. You guys see a phrase, verse twenty: "For your servant knows that I have sinned." Here he comes and kind of confesses, "I have sinned," and that reminds me of when David did the same thing: "I have sinned." So maybe it could be him connecting that. Yeah. I don't have an answer to that question. I'm not sure which side I stand on. I just thought I'd throw it out. Do you have comments and thoughts further through verse 23? Okay. How about 24 to 30? And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride, it, ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant, my lord the king. But the lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you were set, uh, but you said, you're a servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Well, Mephibosheth comes, finally. On his way back home, how does he look? Yeah, unkept. That's a good word. He's, he's pretty rough. And, um, well, what, what's his story? I got left. 
Yeah, Zima tricked me and went off without me, and I'm lame and couldn't come, but I've been mourning all this time. And, uh, you know, he, he told some things about me that just aren't true. You know, and I don't know, how do you, what do you think about Mephibosheth here? Did he tell him the truth? I think, I think his story makes more sense than Zima's. I see motive for Zeba to do what he did. Mephibosheth, even his physical condition, and just the improbability of Zeba's story didn't make sense. How in the world would he have thought he could get back to be king? Why would he want to be? He's doing just fine as in David's palace. The way he's kept himself kind of speaks for what he's saying as well. I mean, if he were thinking that he's going to take over, would he not keep himself looking king? <laughs> yeah. Who wants to look like a tramp and think people will select you as king? Yeah. A good point. It's a nice yeah. contrast with Absalom. Hey, <laughs> you're right. A good point. He's uh, everything that Absalom wasn't, I guess, or vice versa. Yeah, so I really think he's probably telling the truth. How does David deal with this? And it doesn't. Yeah, sort of doesn't. What does he do? Says split the land. Yeah, 50-50. Now, you see one thing right here. David, uh, very quick to make the decision. You know, I think this is somewhat of an embarrassing situation for David. I don't think he wants to have to deal with this any longer than he has to. Okay, we'll split it. Half and half. You get out, he gets out. There you have it. That's fair, isn't it? No. No, no why not? It's almost broken all of it. Yeah. Isn't that funny how we do? We so often think half and half, that's fair. Well, it's not exactly because that would mean if Zeba was lying, his lie got him half of the land that Mephibosheth had all of before. You know, 50-50 is not always the right thing. Depends on who, who owns it, who deserves it. You know, so I think David is trying to just dismiss it. Okay, we'll divide it half and half. But really, he didn't investigate to find out the truth. If Mephibosheth is honest, then Zeba needs to be, you know, done whatever to, and Mephibosheth deserves all the land. Kelly. Well, I know here in my Bible about Solomon with the baby and the sword, and it's sort of the same situation. At least if Mephibosheth is being sincere about this, David learns, if this is true, that Mephibosheth really was just genuine. And he says, Zeba can have the land, just like the mother said, take the baby, don't kill him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not in this for the land. He, he wants David. You know, he appreciates David. Uh, so uh, David does not come out well in this one. And, and I can see myself in that. When you get embarrassed, when, when it's an awkward situation, when you knew you did the wrong thing, so often you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to investigate. You don't want to have to work through it. You just want to we want it over. Okay, we'll do this. But doing this is not necessarily the way to make an equitable, just, fair decision. Comments, yeah, Kevin. Well, that's I think with that in mind, it kind of makes you think he was in the same mode as Shimei. Yeah, just you know, decision deferral. Uh, uh, yeah, I have a hard time knowing on Shimei whether it's good or bad. I can see it both ways, but uh, but with Mephibosheth, it looks to me like I mean, if Mephibosheth was lying, then Ziba deserves it all still. If Ziba was lying, then Mephibosheth deserves it all. Fifty-fifty doesn't really resolve the issue to me. 
There. He would look like a kind of a vacillator though if he had given everything back to Ziba or back to Mephibosheth because you know Ziba comes up to him. Oh, okay, you can have everything. Oh, Mephibosheth. Oh, okay, yeah, you can have everything. Like dividing it 50-50 makes it seem more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Logan. I think Mephibosheth's love for David is such a challenge to our love for God. If you think about it, I mean, just like. Being able to say, um, you know, who needs possessions when you have the king? And just to think about if God never blessed us again, would we still love him? Good point. Do we love God only for what we get out of him? Or do we love God because we love God? Yeah. Other thoughts? All right, let's take a brief break and then we'll do one more session and we'll stop. Chapter 19, David's on his way back and encountering uh, first one person and then another. I think it's kind of interesting, some of the encounters and the conversations. So we're now to uh, verses 31 to 39, if somebody wants to read that. And Barzillai, Gileadite, came down from Rogelum and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? For I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king, and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. And all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. So, Barzillai comes. He is the one that had helped David out so much with giving supplies along with some other people when David uh, needed them so badly, fleeing from Absalom. And uh, now he comes to escort the king back. Uh, Barzillai is about 80. And uh, what does uh, David offer Barzillai? To take care of him. Yeah. Come back to the palace with me and live. And, uh, well, what's Barzillai's attitude about that? What does he think? I can't enjoy it. I'm too old for this. <laughs> you know, it just, it just wouldn't really work well. It wouldn't be right, you know, when it's all said and done because, you know, I'm so old. I wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, you know, he asked a question that really we probably ought to ask more. How long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I mean, that's a pretty good question for us to ask also. You know, how long do I have to live? I mean, sometimes we get so, you know, hung up about this life stuff. And, and really, 
well, how long do we have to live? I mean, it's not going to be that long before we're gone, no matter what. I mean, you may be 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 or whatever, but you're not going to live that long. I mean, wow, I was 20 yesterday and now I'm 55. I don't know what happened, but I figure, you know, if I live that long, I'll be 90 when I turn around halfway again. It, you don't have that long. It, it goes by quickly. And, and so when we invest so much in this life, when we make decisions so focused on this life, it's not really wise on our part. We really need to hold this life with a very loose grip. It's not that important. I think it's also helpful to see Barzillai, you know, enjoying old age in a wise way. He's not trying to just, you know, mimic youth. He's not trying to grasp for some past pleasure. Uh, he realizes this is not the place for him. He can't enjoy it. You know, he can't taste anymore. He can't listen to the singing men and women. You know, why would I come? I'll just be a burden to you. But what does he suggest? David take his son. Yes. His son Chimon can go and he would enjoy it. Now, I love that on Barzillai's part. Because you know what I think sometimes happens to us? We get up to a certain age and there are just things that we can't do, things we don't want to do, things we wouldn't enjoy doing. And we sort of begrudge younger people doing those things because we wouldn't want to. You know, uh, older people a lot of times just really deplore uh, new trends, you know, in our day, technology. I don't know why you have that kind of stuff. I never need that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I'm old. I don't, I don't have the same interests and involvement. Or, you know, physical challenges and things like that. As you get older, they don't appeal to you as much, you know. Uh, it hurts more when you fall. Uh, you don't have the coordination and strength and things like that. And, uh, but, but you shouldn't look down on other people who are younger who do enjoy those things. I, I think it speaks well of Barzillai that he's glad for his son to take advantage of this, kind of offers that today, be glad for, for him to go because he could appreciate it. It would be you know, more enjoyable to him. It would be more of a blessing to him. So I just think Barzillai showed a lot of wisdom in, in his attitude and, and David was willing for Chimham to come in Barzillai's place and so that was very good. Comments and thoughts about that? Right? You know, it's counterintuitive, I think, to American culture. He's 85, he resists the temptation to retire with the king, but he's yet just right before them doing the work of service for the king. Yeah. He's, he's got it all. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to retire, he wants to keep working because he's so old. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's interesting. Brandon? I think the sooner that we grasp that, how, life, how short life is, the better off we're going to be. I think, just for a lot of young people, we think that. And it's really not even just serving the Lord per se. Maybe most of us are doing that in some way. But I remember thinking when I was in my teens, 20s, maybe even into my 30s, I had a lot of, you know, projects, a lot of goals, a lot of ideas as to things I wanted to do, things I wanted to accomplish. And then I've gotten a little bit older. It's like, whoa, those things are not going to happen. I mean, realistically, you know, you'd be 55. I mean, on the best of circumstances, 
you don't have that many more years of really active, productive life, and all these goals and dreams and ideas, well, I could, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, even spiritually. You know, you're like, well, I mean, wow, the clock's ticking. And, and it really does help you to prioritize more. And I wish that I had prioritized better when I was younger. I wasn't doing, going out and doing wild party stuff or anything like that. But there were things that looking back, I could have worked harder at, been more efficient at, made better choices with, that I see, felt like I had a lot of time. So I felt like, you know, it, it was okay. I'd still get, I'd get around to it. But you, as you get older, you just see that, that uh, you know, window, window of opportunity really narrowing. And uh, I think it's really helpful for us to try to see that, to see the brevity of life, the fragility and uncertainty of life. And, and it, it helps us stay more focused and more concentrated. You know, people who have a goal that's really important to them have to stay focused. If you want to be an athlete, you want to be a great basketball player, you want to be an Olympian in some area or whatever, man, that takes a lot of discipline and concentration. You can't get good at something if you don't put a lot of yourself into it for a long time. And, and wow, if we want to be a strong Christian, we've got to really focus. Eric? I'll never forget when an older preacher told me that, um, he asked me if, if I knew why older, a lot of older people are really grumpy. And I said no, and he said it's because they didn't spend their time in their youth getting to know God. They didn't remember the Lord in the days of their youth. And now everything that their life was about can't be accomplished. They can't play their basketball, they can't play their sports, so they're just grumpy all the time. Yeah, well, if your life is meaningful because you're young and healthy and, and, and all that sort of stuff, your life's not very meaningful. And it's, it's the whole meaning of that's going to be be lost so shortly. I mean, only when we've got the Lord do we have anything of substance that fills us up. And it does change your perspective. Other thoughts? 40 to 43. And the king went up to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also the half of the people of Israel, coming in the king. Behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Brought the king and his household, and all David's men with him over the Jordan. Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all of the, at the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of so we got a problem with David choosing the tribe of Judah to bring him back. Now the people of Israel are, well, why did you bring him back and we didn't get you? And the people of Judah are like, well, he's a close relative of us. And why are you upset? We haven't done anything wrong. And the people of Israel are like, well, we got 10, 10 parts to one. You know, we should be more important than you guys are. And then the men of Judah said, and you know how this thing goes. It's a, it's a dis dispute between them. And really the men of Judah ended up being harsher with what they said than the men of Israel. 
So David, having discriminated in favor of Judah, ended up driving a wedge between Judah and Israel. We've said this before, but one of the things that I think is obvious as you study through Old Testament history, there were divisions between the north and the south long before the north and the south divided. Long before Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you see that you know, kind of uh, division uh, occurring sort of beneath the surface and erupting now and then in disputes like this. Comments and thoughts? Logan. Since Israel only mentions ten tribes and Judah by himself had only been one tribe, are they including, even now, is Benjamin being included when they say Judah? I suspect so. Certainly when it did divide, Judah got one tribe, they got Benjamin, and the other ten were with Israel. So maybe so. <coughs> yes, Tim. I thought Simeon that sort of absorbed, got absorbed into Judah. I don't think so. I think it's better to see it as Benjamin. Now that's all kinds of things to look at and think about with that, but I, I think uh, better to see it as Benjamin. Um, you have a passage, if I can remember where it's at, and uh, I think 1 Kings 15, but I may or may not find it, where there are some people that come down. Uh, I'm not seeing it right now. There's a place somewhere, maybe 2 Chronicles 15, where, uh, where there are people from various tribes that come down when Asa is there. And uh, that includes people of Samaria. Of, of, uh, 1 Kings 15.22. Uh, actually, I'm looking right now at Second uh, uh, Chronicles 15:9. Okay. I'll look at the other one. Yeah. First Kings mentions King Asa. Right. Uh, second Second Chronicles 15. Uh, what did I say? Verse uh, nine. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them from many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So that seems to put Simeon, for whatever reason, with Israel defecting down to Asa and puts Judah and Benjamin together. That would be one passage that I would look at in that. Kind of a complicated issue. But. Go. On that note, going back to verse 20, 20 of uh, 19, mm -hmm. why, why does he say that he's the first of all the house of Israel? We know he is a Benjamin. And well, I guess we do. It says his daddy was a Benjamin. Well, he doesn't say that. He said all the house of Joseph. What did I say? That's what I meant to say. But he's not out of the house of Joseph. Yes, he is. Oh, uh, no, he's not. You're right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's saying he's the first Israelite, individually, to, but yeah, you're right, good point. I don't know. Other thoughts? Any more questions I can't answer? All right, 